0: Welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au
1: got the Bible reading this morning. There's actually three passages. The first one is from Nehemiah 12, verses 27 to 31. And then we'll be jumping to uh, chapter 12, verses 38 to 43. And then on to chapter 13. It's about the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netephathites from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right, toward the dung gate. And then in verse thirty-eight, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall, together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of the Ephraim, the Jeshaniah, the Jeshana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Masaiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elioani, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Masaiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezra. The choirs sang under the direction of Jezrahiah, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of, ju- of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. And now on to Nehemiah chapter thirteen, from verse six. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts.
0: Miranda, thank you so much for that. Well read. I uh, I removed a couple of verses in the middle there which had a few more of those tricky names, so uh, you did a really good job on those. Uh, Good morning. My name is Peter Scott. I serve as a senior pastor here, and it's great to be with you. I am going to start with something that I haven't prepared, a little bit impromptu. I want to tell you a very quick story. Thirteen years ago today, I got married to the beautiful woman down the front here. It is our anniversary. It also happens to be Sue and Brendan Gifford's anniversary, so let's give them a clap as well. Um, but but here's, here's the interesting thing about the story. Uh, when we got engaged and when we got married, we, we read a particular passage out of the Bible. And uh, so that's very special to us. And this morning, uh, we sort of got out of bed at different times. I was here a bit earlier. So the first time that we connected this morning was right down here in front. And we said, good morning, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. And then we turned to Alicia who read out that very passage that we read when we got engaged, when we got married. Alicia knew nothing about that. And here's what I take from that. Our God is such a good personal God who gives us these little gifts. And if we'll just look through our lives from time to time, there are these amazing gifts that God just gives and says, hey, here's a special one for you. So isn't that a beautiful thing this morning? I wanted to share that with you because it really struck us as we were going, hey, we know that one. Hey, happy anniversary again. We're in a series on Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, and we've called the series A Community Pursuing God's Vision. It's been great. I've really enjoyed getting into these books that perhaps we don't spend quite so much time on normally. We maybe spend a lot more time in the Gospels and a bit of Genesis and, and some of the other things, but maybe you haven't spent as much time in Ezra and Nehemiah. I haven't, so I've been enjoying this. And what we've covered in the last three weeks, today's the last of the series of four, is looking at God restoring his people, uh, restoring them from exile in a place called Babylon back into their land. And in the first week, Mark Lilly unpacked for us the amazing way that started with a Persian, a foreign emperor saying, I think your God's telling me you should go back and be restored to the land. Incredible. And and they rebuilt this temple, which is where God dwelt among the people, critical part for the people of Israel, of of God in their community. In the second week, uh, Dave Kilpatrick helpfully clarified that the episode of expulsion of foreign wives does not mean that your pastor and his wife uh, need to separate. Uh, She is now fully naturalised Australian, got citizenship and everything, just add that. Um, love you honey, uh, it, but, but it actually was meant for those people to say, I want you to focus on me as your God and not on foreign gods, which in that time often came along with some of those intermarriages. Last week, Aaron Shidze did a great job of explaining to us the wall. We talked about rebuilding this wall and what it represented, the power and strength of the people of Israel a restoration of a whole community and their identity. It was a really good uh, sermon from Aaron last week. And so in all of these events, we see this people of Israel pursuing God's vision for them through what God has done in restoring them. And so now we're in the final chapters of the book, and it seems that the restoration is complete. And in Nehemiah chapter 12, Miranda just read for us, we see the celebration and dedication of the wall. Now, some years earlier, they had done the same for the temple. So in Ezra 6, we read that uh, the temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. But that was 80 years ago, 80 years earlier. So in 515 BC, the temple was finished celebrated and dedicated. And now we're in about 535 BC and the wall's been finished, 80 years separating them. And just in case you're a history buff, just a couple of really interesting little data points. Right in the middle of these two events, the temple and the wall being finished and completed, Esther became queen in the Persian court. So if you know the Bible, we've got Ezra and Nehemiah. The next book is the story of Esther. So right in the middle, actually, Esther becomes queen. And at exactly the same time, again, if you're a history person, the Persian Empire was fighting the Battle of Thermopylae. They were trying to invade Greece through this pass against 300 Spartans. So I just found those little bits of history really interesting that this is all happening at this time back to our reading today. So what insight do we get from this ceremony? We read about this great ceremony of celebrating around the wall. Well, let's talk about some of the insights. First of all, what were they celebrating? Uh, The obvious answer is the wall, this physical completion of a wall. And I've got a couple of slides I thought I'd show. Um, The first one is, if you look on the left here, you see what what, uh, scholars believe the wall looked like in the time that Nehemiah completed it. And you can see there some of the gates. You might not be able to read the names, but if you get up close enough, you can see some of the gates where you would go into the city through the wall. And the piece on the right, the reason I had that is because that's actually a picture of what is now the old city of Jerusalem. And unfortunately, I haven't quite got this right, but the piece on the left is quite small compared to the piece on the right. So if you've been to Jerusalem, as I know a couple of people in our congregation have very recently... Uh, you won't see this old wall, you actually see the old city. It's different from Nehemiah's wall and it's much smaller. So I thought this was just helpful to get a visual image of the shape. And then I've got another picture as well, I hope we've got another slide there. Just to give you a sense, we talked last week about the walls of the city of York, these medieval walls. Well, the walls in Nehemiah's time, they were slightly different. They were quite rocky and uh, they were still tall, but maybe not as tall as medieval walls. But they were very impressive for the time. And I just thought it would be helpful for us just to get this visual image of what does this wall look like? And this is an uh, archaeological dig in Jerusalem. So I hope that's just a little bit helpful to get your head around what what did it look like. This is what they were celebrating, the restoration of this wall and and what it represented, the strength, solidarity and power. Sent a clear message to the people themselves but also to people outside who were maybe anti-the Israelites and antagonistic towards them. But it's much more than celebrating a physical wall. They were celebrating the restoration of all of God's promises. The restoration of God dwelling among them, giving them their land, their community, the temple. They were celebrating God bringing them back from exile and making them his people in their own land again. And most specifically, they were celebrating what God had done. And for me, the key verse if you like it through the passages that we've read is verse 43 and in verse 43 it says that they were rejoicing because God had given them great joy they weren't rejoicing because they were good builders they were recognizing that it's what God has done that's why they were rejoicing so we see that this is a celebration of all of those things and particularly a celebration of what God has done The language we see is not just celebration, though. it's dedication is is the interesting word that's used. And they were dedicating the wall and the headline in my uh, NIV Bible says, the dedication of the wall. And verse 27 talks about dedication of the wall. But as I read it, I I think it's broader than that. Because when we get into verse 30, we we read this, that the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, ceremonially and then they purified the people, the gates and the wall. There's a sense here that there's a broader dedication of the whole people to God, as well as the wall and the gates. And this purification process was something that the the Israelites were familiar with to prepare themselves for an event like this. We get the sense that it's a crowning celebration of dedicating the whole people And that's emphasised a little bit. Last week, if you were here, we actually were talking from Nehemiah chapter 6. Now we're in Nehemiah chapter 12. What's happened in the middle? Well, in the middle, the people have come together and in chapter 8, we see them reading scripture as an assembly. They all come together and they just listen to the word of God being read. And then in chapter 9, they confess their sins and they say, you know, we just recognise that we've done the wrong thing. Lord, thank you. We repent. Thank you for bringing us back to you. And then they go on, also in chapter 9, to recommit to this covenant with God. So there are a number of things that have happened between the wall being finished and this celebration ceremony. And there's a sense here that they are dedicating themselves as well as their city to God. So what do we learn from this? Well, there are some great lessons for next time we finish off a building project. And actually, we have a building project going. I don't know if you've been down to Forestdale recently, but uh, I went two or three weeks ago and saw an enormous change at the Forestdale campus. There are walls going up. There are buildings being built. And as we look towards the launch of high school at Forestdale in 2019, there's a fantastic amount of building going on there. So there's probably something we can learn here for when we dedicate and celebrate that physical building. But I think it's a lot more than that. I actually think there are things we can learn here about our Sunday mornings together, about how we celebrate on a Sunday morning. And and I think it's quite instructive for how we worship, particularly how we do musical worship. Now we spend quite a chunk of our time on a Sunday morning doing musical worship. We've had just some beautiful worship this morning that Theo and Alicia have led us in. But you might have some questions about musical worship. I wonder if you do. People have raised various things with me. There are lots of questions about musical worship. Um, Should we sing the latest songs or should we sing some old songs, in fact, songs that are sometimes a few hundred years old? Uh, Should we sing, funnily enough, I was even having a conversation with someone this morning about this. Should we sing songs that have words about us and our feelings or should we sing songs that are just about God? Should we have time of open and free worship? You know, it's not quite clear what you're doing. Or should we just have times where we just sing the words? There are so many questions about worship, including how we use our bodies and our arms. Why don't, why don't you take a look at this little video?
2: And I know that each church has its own worship style, you know? which is cool. Some people are more expressive in worship, some people more subtle, and it's all good. Um, I go to a church that's pretty expressive in worship. It's um, it's a hand-raising church. That's what it is, right? That's what, you know. Anybody here go to a hand-raising church? Am I here? Sweet. Who here does not go to a hand-raising church? <laughs> some of you are trying, you're like, I can't. I want to, t- I- Need to get some momentum. <laughs> totally cool. But hey, if you're not used to going to a hand raising church, you wanna go and join us, feel free to join us, but don't feel like you gotta join right in, okay? Start slow. We got a lot of different hand raises that we use. We actually have names for our hand raises. So I'm gonna walk you through real quick, okay, what they are, just to let you know. Say you're at my church, music is rocking. start slow. Hands in the pockets, little elbow flap, you're fine. Very subtle, get warmed up, get your heart rate up. When you're warmed up, start with the first one. Ready, carry the TV. Carry the TV, that's our first one. Very subtle. Go to big screen. Big screen, a little wider. Next one's, my fish was this big. My fish was this big. If you're a liar, you go out there, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves you, grace. Next one's, hold my baby. Hold my baby. Got dueling light bulbs. That's our next one, dueling light bulbs. We got goalpost. Everybody knows goalpost. Throwing a heartburn. A lot of people like to do heartburn. Double heartburn, right back to goalpost. What's my favorite? Mufasa. Mufasa, that's my favorite. The circle of life. Tim, can you go higher? Yes, you can. You can take one hand, go a bunch of different stuff. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. Release the doves. Give the Lord a high five. Press it out. A lot of women like to wash the window. Wash the window. And when you're comfortable there, go for the big three. Village people, Rocky, touchdown. There you go. There's your big three.
0: I hope I haven't offended anybody. They are... uh I find that quite entertaining. Here's the point of that. There are different ways that we can worship. And as he said right at the front, uh, they're all fine. And God gives us grace. And you might see, I think I've used most of those, not quite sorry about the dueling light bulbs, but most of them I've used at different times. And I just want to encourage us to have that freedom. For some people, it's very natural to be able to worship with our hands up. For others, it's it's just more comfortable like this and, and both are okay. But well, I hope you enjoyed that a little bit. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to share. I heard from someone this, this what I thought was a beautiful uh, uh, analogy. is said, "You know, w- worship is where we come together with what we have, and we offer it up to God, and then we realise it's all about Him, and what we have falls away." I just thought, oh, that's 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 a beautiful image." So I just share those things with you. There you go. Now this passage that we're looking at, it doesn't give us prescriptive ways to worship. Thankfully. Because otherwise I'd be saying to this half of the room you need to stand up, you are choir number 1, you can walk that way around the auditorium and start singing and all of you can stand up and go the other way. This this passage is not prescriptive. We don't have to sing in two choirs and walk around the auditorium. But I can pull out of this I think five good principles for musical worship in particular and I want to share those with you this morning. The first principle is the purpose of worship. And the purpose here we see is one of celebration and thanksgiving. Uh, the Hebrew word for these choirs is fascinating. It can be translated as thanksgivings. There are two thanksgivings walking around the walls. And we see that in verse 27, the Levites have been brought to Jerusalem for this explicit reason, to celebrate with songs of thanksgiving. So can we celebrate without music? Yes. Yes. But in this instance, we're talking about musical worship being bringing, bringing this together. And the purpose, the focus, if you like, is on God. Back to this verse 43, which I think is pivotal. And it talks about rejoicing because of what God has done. The purpose of worship is to be focused on God. Number two, what's the nature of worship? Here we see it is joyful. Let's read verse 43 in total. See how many times you can pick out the word joy or its derivative. On that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. The nature of this musical worship is joyful. Number three, the third thing that I pull out of this, Their hearts and where their hearts were at were more important here than their voices, than how they sounded or what they were singing. And we see that in this purification ritual in verse 30, where there was a whole process that they went through. In fact, before that even, the scripture reading, the confession, the recommitment, there was this process of getting their heart rights so they were ready to celebrate with joy. And that's a principle we see elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, Keith Green had a song many years ago. You might be familiar with it. It's from Psalm verse fifty-one, ten, and it says this. I'm not going to sing it. I'll just say it. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. If you've been around church circles for a while, you might have heard that one. Number four, hymn lovers take note. Tradition has a place. Tradition has a place. Now what I find fascinating in chapter 12 here is that we see in verse 24, 36 and 46 explicit references to doing this musical celebration in a way that was done hundreds of years beforehand. It's a reference to King David and his music and his musical style. So this passage seems to be saying that there is a connection that we can draw between music from the past and now. And and I would argue that there is a rich connectivity, that if and when we sing hymns, we don't do that all the time here. Sometimes we do. But when we do, there's this connectivity with people of faith throughout history, with what they were going through, with how they were experiencing worship. And when we sing some of those songs, it actually gives us a reminder that we're part of this rich, millennia-long tradition of worshipping God through song. And the final thing, the fifth point that I want to draw out this morning from this passage about musical worship for us on a Sunday is that there is unity in the worship. There's unity. People are brought together. They were brought not only from the surrounding parts of Jerusalem, in the city, outside the city, they were brought together. But in a society where most of the time in public uh, situations it was all about the men. It would be the men that were gathered to read the scripture or to worship or to do other things. Here we see very clearly in our pivotal verse, verse 43, that the women and children were there as well, rejoicing. This is a whole community thing. Everybody's together. There is a unity, and worshipping God here draws people together. So, with those helpful insights on worship and celebration, we get to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah. God has restored his people, the temple, he's restored them to their land. There's a joyful emotional high. They're celebrating. They're walking around walls. They end up at the temple. It's an amazing time, and you know this is this is our movie time where the movie is drawing to an end. Nehemiah is standing there on the wall. I haven't got a step, but you know it's probably one foot up. He's have his hands on his hips like this. The sun is setting in the background. The harps, the cymbals, the lyres are coming up. The two choirs are singing. It's beautiful. The sun's going down. And you just know that this people is going to live happily ever after in a completely blessed state. Strangely, though, that's not how this ends. That was chapter 12. And as Miranda read a little bit for us, Nehemiah has a chapter 13. And, and here's what we find in Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah, maybe he did have that moment, but then he goes back to, uh, to Persia and to Babylon, and he's serving the emperor uh, and, you know, fantastic, thanks so much for letting me go. It was a great success. Everything's been done. It was awesome. And then the Bible says a little while later, Nehemiah came back. You can sort of imagine him saying, would you mind if I just pop back? I want to see how they're all going in that land happily ever after. It's just it's going to be an awesome visit. And he comes back, and here's what we find in verse 13, in chapter 13. The temple is being violated and neglected. The Sabbath is being broken. People are starting to marry foreign wives again. The priestly office is being violated. And there's this litany of concerns that causes Nehemiah to go, well, hang on, these are the reasons why, and and this is a quote from him, God brought all this calamity onto us and our city. He's saying, have we learned nothing? All the things that are going on now so soon after that celebration That's why we got sent into exile in the first place. And that's where it ends. It's strange if you think about Ezra and Nehemiah as a movie, and and that would be a strange place for a movie to end, but, but actually I think it's more like an episode in a series. And as this episode finishes now that we actually have seen the whole series we know that we haven't even got to the central part of the plot yet we certainly haven't got to the end of the movie it's not that God's movie doesn't end happily it does but this isn't the end the books of Ezra and Nehemiah point us to God's faithfulness God restored what he promised and there was a wonderful celebration and joy that was totally appropriate for that restoration but they also point out this that as people, we can't hold up our end of the bargain. You see, even with restored temple and land and all those great things and the emotional high of a great celebration, soon afterwards, we don't know how long, but soon afterwards, the cycle started again. These books, written hundreds of years before Jesus came, point to the need for Jesus. They point to the fact that Jesus is coming because people in our own strength, we can't live up to our end of the bargain. We read in the Gospels hundreds of years later that God sent his son in grace because we need his forgiveness. We need his love and the power of the Holy Spirit to live in us. We are not capable of being faithful to God and what he he asks us to do in his covenant. And so Jesus came, lived a life of complete obedience and did fulfil it. But then sacrificed himself for us so that we might enter into this new covenant. And then when Jesus rose on high, he sent the Holy Spirit to us to empower us to live in a new way. So why doesn't Ezra and Nehemiah end on the Hollywood note? Because it's pointing to the coming of Jesus and our need as people for him. I think there's also a second reason though. And we've been talking about worship and the second reasons related to worship. I think these books help us to see that worship is much more than just an emotional high. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever had a time of, of worship or, or, or time where you sensed, Ah, oh, I'm so close with God. It was just fantastic and and I felt that I was really intimate with God and everything was going right and and I feel that the rest of my life is going to be awesome because I feel so close to him. And and then maybe a week later or, or maybe a month or sometime later you start to wonder why you haven't had that feeling a little while. I can't get back to that feeling and, and maybe you've attributed it to the fact that, well, the musical worship just wasn't quite doing it for me. You know, the, the choirs weren't as big and, and they weren't walking as far and, well, there was too much cymbal and not enough lyre and, and really, if they could just bring back um, Eliakim, Messiah, Minahim and Micah on the trumpets, then, then maybe I could get back. Have you had that experience? I think part of the reason Ezra and Nehemiah doesn't end on a high is because it's reminding us that worship is far more about our attitude and what we are bringing in our hearts than the emotional experience. Paul, in Romans chapter 12, and I think I've got this verse here on the slide for you, here's what Paul says about worship. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, God's mercy in sending his son because he recognised we couldn't keep up our part of the covenantal bargain. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul's saying here that our true and proper worship is offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, what does that mean? I think it means that every moment of life is an opportunity to worship. I recently heard this podcast speaker talking about a church that he had been to and on the entranceway door to the church, there was a sign and the sign said, beware, you are now entering a place of worship. I thought okay as you're listening you think okay that's kind of okay but, but beware that's a bit strange but he went on to say actually the sign was on the inside and so it's as you are leaving the church you read this sign and the idea that when we leave here this morning we're entering a place of worship every moment of the day we can be living sacrifices but let's look at that phrase as well a living sacrifice uh, well what does that mean uh, let's think about parts of our body, our, our eyes. What does it mean to have our eyes as a living sacrifice? Well, it probably means not always looking at everything. Maybe choosing the things that we see. Sacrificing, you know what, I don't need to see that particular thing, that movie or, or that screen or, or whatever. I'm going to sacrifice that. It's an act of worship. What about our mouths? Maybe there are things that we want to say sometimes. But we sacrifice saying that because actually we want to honour God and honour the people that he loves, which, of course, is everybody. We're going to choose what we say with our mouths, with our hands, what we do. Maybe you're a mechanic. The way you do your job can be an act of worship. Maybe you look after small children, the way you do that can be an act of worship. And we could go on with lots of different parts of our body. Communal worship is really important. Communal worship remains really important. We, this morning, coming together with our hearts in the right place, can have a joyful experience together of celebrating God. And I think part of that joyful communal worship time together is not only celebrating, but it's dedicating ourselves to the rest of the week of worship. So we need to be careful of this idea of chasing an emotional high, and and I just want to read you one other thing on this. Uh, A guy called Oswald Chambers wrote a daily devotional, devotional called My Utmost for His Highest, and here's what he says about this sense of looking for emotional highs. I think it's really powerful, so so bear with me as I read it. He says, One of the worst traps a Christian worker can fall into is to become obsessed with their own exceptional, exceptional moments of inspiration. When the Spirit of God gives you a time of inspiration and insight, you tend to say, Now I've experienced this moment. I will always be like this for God. There's that high we talked about, that sense of, Oh, oh this is awesome. I'm in a great place. I'm with God. But Oswald says, no, you will not. And God will make sure of that. He says, those times are entirely the gift of God. You can't give them to yourself when you choose. Now, when I read this, that really struck me, this idea that "Ah, it's not about me choosing when I get those emotional highs. If they come, that is a great gift from God. That was really helpful. And he goes on to say, if you say you'll only be at your best for God, as during those exceptional times, you actually become an intolerable burden on him. That's strong language. I'm still thinking about whether I really agree with that. But this is his opinion. You become intolerable burden on God. If you make a God out of your best moments, you'll find that God will fade out of your life until you're obedient in the work he has placed closest to you. And until you have learned not to be obsessed with those exceptional moments he has given you. And that helps me understand this idea of, why did I sort of feel dry and I couldn't get back there? Maybe it's because I'm chasing the high rather than God. God must always be at the centre of our worship, together here and when we are out living our lives as living sacrifices. And as we've seen from Ezra and Nehemiah, when we come to time of worship together, we should approach it with great joy and celebration. But it's more than that highlight, it's about this daily commitment to walking as living sacrifices. So we come to the end of our time in Ezra and Nehemiah together. I'll just quickly recap. We've looked this morning at this great celebration. The restoration that God gave to his people as they were pursuing his vision to be a community together again, and he restored them. And we've talked about how the wall was built, they committed themselves, and now they are celebrating with great joy and thanksgiving. We've looked at some of the learnings from musical worship this morning, those five points. And we've spent time understanding why Ezra and Nehemiah doesn't end on a Hollywood high movie note because it's pointing us to Jesus. And helping us see this idea of ongoing living sacrifice worship. So as we end the series and as we end this morning, we're going to go straight into a time of going to the Lord's table together. Really fitting, I think, that that's where we finish. Because at the table that we will celebrate at in a minute, this celebration, thanksgiving, worship and dedication come together. They all meet. Celebration because, as Nehemiah said, God has given us great joy. Dedication as we spend this time together, as we think about God's great mercy for us, as we talk to him and remember that, that we rededicate ourselves to following him and walking along with him. And worship in that we put God first in this moment. Whatever else we bring These moments around the table together are all about God. Perhaps, though, this is something unfamiliar to you, so let me just briefly explain what we're about to do. Maybe it's your first time if you're a visitor or a guest. So great to have you with us. We do this regularly. We celebrate around this table and and we do it because Jesus, the night before he died, he, he was having a meal with his followers, called them disciples, and he had some bread and he had Cup of wine, and and he used those and he said, I want you, people who follow me, to do this to remember me and remember what I'm going to do tomorrow. Remember that the bread actually represents my body that's going to be broken and now has been broken for people who follow me. And that the cup of wine, he said, this represents my blood, which is the new covenant, this new covenant of grace so that we don't have to live up to the law and the, the, the part of the covenant that we just can't do as people, but actually we live under his covering and his grace. So that's what we do. These are, these are symbolic things. There's bread and a cup on each of these tables for us to take together. And this morning, here's what I'd ask us to do. In a moment, I'll ask you to, to get up if you would like to, if you'd like to take part in this, to go and get the bread and the cup and to come back and sit down. And as we do that, Alicia and Theo are going are to play for us. And so there's time to reflect. Reflect on what we've, God's been saying this morning. Reflect on where you're at with him. Reflect on this concept of leaving here, following him, being a living sacrifice. Whatever he's been speaking to you about, there's a chance to reflect. And then as the song finishes, I'll come and I'll pray for us. I'll pray over the bread and the, and the cup. And we will drink and eat together. So if you could hold on to the cup and the bread together, that would be great. So can I ask you, as we close now and as we move into this new time, stand up, go and grab the elements if you'd like to and we'll move into this time of reflection.